The scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 25, through chapter 3, verse 15, and chapter 3, verse 21. It can be found on pages 2 in the Black Bibles. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He had said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat any of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was for good food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. The Lord God said to the serpent, because of this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Clarks, for reading. And once again, thank you all for being here. My name is John Trapp the senior pastor here at Christ the King. It really is a joy to have all of you here with us. Particular um, welcome if this is your first time visiting Christ the King. We're really glad to have you here. City, uh, Houston is a city where uh, there's a lot of places to be seen, um, and this is not one of them. This is not a place where you just show up and uh, we want you to be seen. This is a place where we want you to be known. Um, This is not a place to show up just to try to be seen by God, um, that you showed up and that you came to church or to be seen by others. Uh, We do want to see you, but we want to know you and we want this to be a place where you can be known by one another and by God. And um, our world, it's, it's it's a hard place to do that, to be known and to know others. Um, many, for many reasons, because of what I'm going to talk about today, um, our title of the sermon is Shame and Covering. And shame is something that um, maybe you haven't thought much 
about as it pertains particularly to the story of Genesis, but I think it's, uh, it's all in there, and I hope you see that this morning. Let me pray for us and ask that the Lord would help us as we study his word together. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us now to see that, uh, that you are the God who is willing to meet us in our shame, that you are the one who knows the truth about us and who comes looking for us. And we pray that you would help us to see the truth about ourselves and the truth about you now together as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, if you're, if you're anything like me, um, you have at some point lived with a fear that people would know the real you. I grew up in a small town in North Alabama called Tuscumbia. It's a town of 8,000 people. It's a very blue-collar kind of place. And uh, my family was not a, a blue-collar family. And that was... In, in, in a lot of ways, kind of a source of insecurity for me as a kid, just feeling like I did not fit in in the place where I grew up. Um, I spent more time in a theater than in a duck blind or a deer, uh, deer stand and uh, just felt like, man, this, uh, I, I just didn't feel like I fit in. And part of, the, of me living out of that, that fear and insecurity uh, meant that I looked to things to kind of latch onto that uh, people would celebrate or think was good. Um, so whether that was um, trying really hard to do well in, in, in sports or um, my brother and sister kind of had like rebellious phases that they went through in their teenage years. So I'm, I was like, I'm just going to zag where they're zigging. So I'm, I'm going to try to be really good and uh, get really involved in, in the church. And, um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe people will, will, will celebrate that about me or find that to be good about me. And um, underneath all of this, though, was a, a real fear of the, of the real me being seen and known and then rejected. That was my fear. And um, I, I would argue that, um, that for many of us, um, for really for all of us, what we, what we most long for is to be fully known and loved. For the, the truth about us to be seen and known and for us to be loved, because I believe this is how we were, were made. We're made for this. So that's my first point, how we were made. My second point is going to be what shame does, and the third is the way out. How we were made, what shame does, the way out. The Bible claims that we were made for deep relationship. We, we looked at this some in the first chapter of Genesis. But brief review, we see that when God decides to make people, he makes them in his image. So we are made like God. And when he makes man and woman, he says, let us make man in our image. So that means that fundamentally you and I, we're made in the image of an us. Let us make man in our image. And this us that is being referred to, that we see play out all throughout the scriptures, is that God is one God, three persons, 
Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So God for eternity, it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around this, not kind of, very hard to wrap our minds around this. For eternity, God has existed in community with himself as Father, Son, and Spirit in love. John says in John 1, 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. For eternity, God has been love and he will be love. And then he creates us to be participants in his love. We were made for a relationship. And if you if you're, grew up as a stodgy Presbyterian like I did, you might be thinking like, I thought we, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yes, it is. And that happens in the context of love and a loving relationship. You can't enjoy someone if you're not in relationship with them. We are welcomed into relationship. It's what we're made for. And we see this all throughout our, our world. In, in um, 1988, the New York Times um, had a story about a discovery that a doctor in New York had made. This doctor worked in the neonatal intensive care unit or the NICU at uh, the hospital where premature babies were brought and cared for. And in the 80s, if you had a premature baby, um, maybe you've, you've, they still have these in NICUs, the, like the kind of plastic bubbles that the child is placed in. Um, we, we spent two months in a NICU with one of our children and, and would see him in the plastic bubble where he was cared for and given food and oxygen and all of that. But up until um, 1988, babies that were put in those bubbles were really, the idea was like you never touch them, you leave them there. And they're given the food and resources that they need, but you really don't need, they don't need physical contact. And this doctor in New York in 1988 had a hypothesis that children would actually respond to human physical touch because it would give them like a, a relational connection. And as... Um, the hospital did this, babies were massaged for 15 minutes, three times a day. What they discovered is that the babies who received just this small bit of physical, regular contact in relationship were discharged six days faster and gained weight 47% faster than their counterparts. We're made for relationship. Eight months later, these kids um, were further along in their mental and physical development because of that early connection that they had made. Similarly, in, um, in the late 80s in Romania, after the communist rule in Romania fell, um, and many were brought into Romania to give, uh, to give care, they, there was discovered that children had been um, put in these orphanages in Romania. And in those orphanages, they had been given all, all the, the food that they needed, the medical attention that they needed, the hygiene that they needed, but these children didn't have relational connection with anyone who was caring for them. And because of that, in those orphanages, the infant mortality rate, in an orphanage where they were getting the food that they needed, the hygiene that they needed, the infant mortality rate was 33% in some of these orphanages because we're made for relationship. We are born looking for a face that's looking for us. That's how we're brought into this world. Um, a more recent study uh, found that, okay, 
if you are obese in America, you are 30% more likely to die young, meaning before the age of 70. There is one condition that is actually worse for your health than obesity, and it's chronic loneliness. The chronically lonely are 50% more likely to die young than those who are not because we were made for a relationship. It's worse for your health than smoking to be chronically lonely. We were made for relationship. Uh, Ken Seidel is a, a documentary, documentary was recently um, done on him by the New York Times. He lives in New York City. He is a professional cuddler. You heard me right. He cuddles professionally. And um, it's all safe touch, the, the, and, and I'm not like saying you should go get this job. He does make $80 an hour. But as a professional cuddler, he is invited to people's homes to just sit on the couch and to be near them. And that's all he does. And in the documentary, um, one of the women who's being interviewed says, that when she's having this kind of like therapy, she says, I feel like I matter. And then she kind of stops herself and she says, that might've been too deep, but that's how I feel. Cuddling can make you do that. It can make you feel like a human being when you feel invisible to the rest of the world. I mean, the most densely populated city in our country, so many people and so lonely. We were made for relationship. And yet our, our, our great fear, our great fear that even that this woman was, was tapping into is to not be known, for no one to know us, for us to be alone, or for us to be known and not loved, to be abandoned, to be rejected. That is our great fear. And the picture that we get of Adam and Eve at the end of Genesis 2 is the opposite of that. The last thing is so interesting. The last thing that's said about mankind and about Adam and Eve at the end of Genesis 2, before sin enters the world, the last thing that the author wants us to know is that they were naked and that they were not ashamed. The full truth about them was seen and known. And in that truth being seen and known, they were, there was no shame. But I want you to see what shame does. Second point, what shame does. Uh, there's a, there's a, a really interesting book on this subject if you want to learn more about it, and I actually commend it to you. Um, it's got a real fun title, The Soul of Shame. Not a fun title, I'm just kidding, it's not a fun title. But maybe, maybe not the title of the, the next summer beach read you were looking for, but... The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson. Um, Dr. Thompson's a psychiatrist, he's a, he's a Christian, um, and in his medicine, he, he focuses on neurobiology. And he explains that, that shame actually has, there are um, physical and chemical manifestations that happen in our brain as we experience shame. Shame like happens to us. And he says, the purpose of shame is to dismantle us as in individuals and communities and destroy all of God's creation. That is a massive purpose. The purpose of shame is to dismantle us as individuals and communities and destroy 
all of God's creation. That, that may sound like he's overselling it a little bit, but I want you to see a verse, look at verse seven. The very first thing that we see that's said about Adam and Eve after they've eaten, the very end of verse six, he ate. What's the next thing gonna, what's the next thing to happen? What are they gonna say next? Verse seven, what happens right after he eats? Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. The next thing that happens is they become ashamed. In their sin, their eyes are opened, they look at themselves and they see something that they're ashamed of. The difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is I have done something wrong. I, did, I, I behaved wrongly and now I feel guilty about it. Shame is more of like an ontological kind of thing or a, a being. And it's not that I, I've done something wrong, but that I am wrong. And that's what's happening here is that they have seen not only what they've done, but that they are wrong. And I want you to see the three things that this shame does to them in the story. One, it makes, shame makes us judge. Two, it makes us hide. And three, it makes us isolate. So first, shame makes Adam and Eve in this story begin judging. And the first place that their judgment goes actually is to themselves. They look down and they see that they're, they're naked. They begin judging themselves. They see their own nakedness. And this is what Augustine talks about when he says that our sin makes us incurvatus in se. That's a Latin phrase meaning cur- we become curved in upon ourselves and our sin. We become self-obsessed and in that self-obsession, we become really judgmental of ourselves. And that judgmentalism of ourselves makes us ashamed and feel like we need to hide. But not only are they judging themselves, but they also begin judging and blaming others. In verse 12, when God comes to Adam, what, is the, what does the man say? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. So now, now he's judging the woman and he's maybe kind of judging God. The woman who you gave me, gave me the fruit. If you hadn't given her to me. But the judgment of others starts with the judgment of the self. Are you judgmental of others? Of your spouse? Are you judgmental of your enemies? Your political enemies? What about, what about kids? What about your siblings? Do you judge them? Or do you judge your parents? Or do you judge your friends? Or your coworkers? One of the things that um, Dr. Thompson says in his book is that our judgmentalism comes from years of practicing on ourselves. He says, shamed people shame people. So if you are shamed, you will shame. Shamed people shame people. Long before we're criticizing others, the source of that criticism has been planted, fertilized, and grown in our lives, directed at ourselves, and often in ways that we are mostly unaware of. I I see this in my own life. I see this in my marriage. When, when my wife Chrissy comes 
and tells me in love something that she sees in me that needs to change. Do you know what I do? I'd like to say, I say, oh, thank you so much. You love me and you just have my best interest at heart. I really appreciate that. But what I actually begin to do is judge her for telling me that and tell her all the right reasons why I did what I did. And if you just understood, the real problem is that you don't understand why I was doing or saying what I did. Because if you understood what I did or said, then you would see that I'm actually righteous. I'm actually right and good. And so this is what we do in our, in our defensiveness. In our defensiveness because what is it that we're actually believing? Well, what I'm believing in that moment is what I've been telling myself for years, which is that if I'm wrong, no one will like me. No one will love me. If I'm wrong, I'm unlovable. And so when someone comes and then says that to me, I turn it on them because they're saying this thing that I've been telling myself for years. Shamed people shame people. What voices are you listening to about yourself? What do you say about yourself? I mean, some of the nastiest things that I think, I think about myself. Maybe it's after a, a, failed, a failed experience in your job, what do you say about yourself? What do you say about yourself when you look in the mirror, when you look at your body? What do you say about yourself? What do you say about yourself when you're at a party and you just kind of feel anxious and you don't really know what to, to say to people? What's the inner dialogue like? What shame tells you is that you aren't worthy. You aren't worthy of love. And so because of that, the second thing shame does is it makes us hiders, it makes us hide. This is what Adam and Eve do. They see that they're naked, what do they do next? They hide from each other by making loincloths of fig leaves and then they hide from God. They jump into the bush when they hear him coming. That's what our shame does. It makes us hide from one another and hide from God because we believe that if the true me was seen, no one would want me. This is why like, you can't trust dating apps. Because when you get on a dating app, everyone's putting the fake version of themselves on the dating app, right? And the, the, you know, the most <laughs> like filtered, the, the, the most like just edited and best version of themselves with kind of the best edited resume, that's, that's what's put forward on this. And then you, then you meet the real person, you're like, it's not what I was expecting. Because that's what we believe. There was a, a podcast I was listening to recently and they did a feature on a different kind of dating website called, the, the dating website's title is Settle for Love. And the way this website works is um, everyone who, who fills out their profile kind of agrees to say the, the, the truth about 
the good, the bad, and the ugly of themselves. And so they're interviewing this guy, Paul, who, who gave them the rundown of his, of his profile. My pros, I love to cook, I'm wild for movies, and I'm resourceful. My cons, I have social anxiety, questionable dress sense, and I'm visually impaired in my left eye. That's Paul's profile. And I want you to think about how interesting is it that the title of this dating website is Settle for Love, because that's what we believe. What we, what we believe is that if someone knew the real me, they'd have to settle. If somebody knew the real Paul, they'd have to settle. If someone knew the real John, someone knew the real you, they'd have, they'd settle, like loving me would be settling. And this pushes against what we were made for. Because what we were made for is to be fully known and loved, but what most of us end up settling for is to not be known, but to still be loved. I'll hide and not be fully known, but at least maybe I can be loved some, but that's superficial love. But many of us settle for that because it sounds a lot better than like the opposite, which is to be fully known and not loved. That's terrifying to be fully known and not loved and rejected. And so instead we settle for being not known, but loved, which isn't really love at all. But in our hiddenness, what shame does, it makes us judge, it makes us hide. And in our hiddenness, we're isolated. Shame isolates us. If you're hidden from others, then you will inherently be, be alone. No one knows no one knows the real you. It's why um, I think what, what's said in Alcoholics Anonymous is, is so true, which is that we are only as sick as the secrets we keep. But the mechanism for, for telling us to keep those secrets, what it is, is it's this, it's shame. Saying that if, if someone knew the real you, they wouldn't want you. What's the way out of this? Is there a way out of this to be fully known? Well, I want you to think about this world that Adam and Eve are about to step into. They're about to leave Eden. They're going into a world that's going to be dangerous. It's going to be cursed, where they're going to feel their weakness, where they're gonna feel their isolation. They're gonna feel the results of their sin. And Adam and Eve's best idea before God shows up is, for, is to make crummy fig leaves and to just cover themselves with it. They're gonna go into this dangerous world and they're going in with these, these bad garments, fragile garments that they've put on themselves. And for many of us, that's our solution that we've, that we've come up with, that I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna cover myself up with my money or with my power or with my accomplishments Church folk do this too. I'm just gonna cover myself up with my religiosity. I'm, 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 gonna, I'm gonna have people think that I'm a great person or maybe if I do a lot of good stuff, maybe I'll feel like God thinks I'm a good person. And, and, and we do this. I mean, think about like, when you, if someone were to ask you like, how does, how's your relationship with God going? How do we answer that question? We often start talking about 
well, I've been praying some. I need to get better about that and just start reading my Bible more. I've started going to Christ the King. The preacher's incredible. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, and, you know, but I'm trying, you know, what we do is we start talking about what we're doing. And the question is, how's your relationship with God? What are we, what are we tipping our hand at? That we think our relationship with God is based on what we do. And it's not. Praise the Lord that it's not. Because if our relationship is based upon what we do, then we're always having to hide behind our accomplishments or behind whatever it is that we're bringing to God saying, please make this love me. Make, make, make this have you love me, please. That was a terrible sentence, whatever. You know what I mean. But we do that. And instead, what God offers, rather than like, hey, just be more religious, rather than like, hey, you know what? You just need to accept yourself. You just need to love yourself. That's what our world tells you to do. The way out of shame is to love yourself. You be you and accept yourself. You know what? Acceptance is a really, really poor substitute for love. And the other problem with self-acceptance is it leaves you with yourself. And you weren't made just for self-love. You were made to be loved by another. You're made in the image of an us. You're made for a relationship. And so instead, what we see is that the way that we can be healed from shame, it is, it is to be welcomed into vulnerability by a God who promises to become vulnerable for you. In Genesis 3.15, we're gonna talk more about this um, next week, but briefly, in Genesis 3.15, God looks at this serpent who has shamed this woman. Now, I, even when God says like, who told you you were naked? It was probably the serpent accusing. Look what you did. You should better cover yourself up. God looks at that serpent and he makes a promise that there is going to be one that will come from this woman who has been shamed. There is one who is going to come and he says, serpent, you will bruise his heel, but in bruising his heel, that heel will come down upon your head and crush you. Kids in the room, I want you to know this. And adults, y'all should listen in. Kids, you're gonna hear about all kinds of different gods as you grow older and all kinds of different religions and it's great to learn about them. But one of the things that you'll see is that there's no other God like this. There's no other God who becomes a man and promises to die for us. There is no other God like that who so cares about our shame, who so wants us to come out of our hiddenness that he steps into our shame. He becomes a man of sorrows. The Lord Jesus steps into our shame. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus became vulnerable. Jesus stepped into all of the shame 
that we deserve. Jesus was made naked. He was mocked. He was led out through the city. Everyone scoffed at him. They spit at him. They turned against him. Jesus was taken to the garbage dump outside the city of Jerusalem. Jesus was nailed to a cross. Jesus, the most shameful death, by the way, nailed to a cross, crucified between two criminals and a garbage dump outside the city in front of his mom, naked. The the most shameful death. Why? For the joy that was set before him. And the joy is is you, church. It's, it's people who have turned from him, people who have rebelled against him, people who have done shameful things. Jesus comes to save us. Just like the father comes looking for Adam and Eve here, calling out, where are you? Jesus comes into the world to rescue us. to clothe us. Uh, a friend of mine told me about um, someone in his church and this uh, was a married couple and the woman in, in um, this marriage relationship had had a secret that she had been living with for their entire marriage and it, it, it was eating her up and she was very ashamed about it. And so one night she sat her husband down and she told him that when they had been engaged that she had been unfaithful to him with another man. And she told him in tears and weeping and mourning and he listened to her. He didn't ask any questions, he just listened. And then he says, I want you to stay here. I'm going to leave for a minute, but I will be back. And so he leaves, she's just beside herself. He doesn't know what's gonna happen to their marriage, what's gonna happen to her. And about an hour later, she sees the headlights of his car pulling into the driveway. And he walks out, takes her by the hand, walks her into the bedroom. And he's holding a bag, and out of the bag, he he takes a white bathrobe. And he puts it around her shoulders. And he says, whenever you're in this room, I want you to wear this. I want you to wear this and I want you to remember that I see you as white and as clean and as pure as this robe. I'm so glad that you told me that. I forgive you. I love you. That is what God has done with us. He he knows, that he already knows the truth about y'all. He already knows the truth about me. And he, by his son, has welcomed us to be dressed in the righteous robes of the Lord Jesus, that Jesus has paid for us. You see how this, how this story ends in the end of Genesis 3? What does God do with them? Right before he sends them out of the garden, he looks at their crummy fig leaves. He's like, you're not gonna be okay with that. You need me to dress you. And so the first living sacrifice is done. An animal sheds its blood so that they can be dressed by another. 
That's what God holds out to you. And the way that you're dressed by him is to come to him in faith. So listen, if you have not yet believed in Jesus, that is held out to you, that you can be full, like God can fully know you. And not because of whatever like resume that you've brought before him, not because of the way that you're hiding yourself really well before him. He knows the deepest, darkest corners of your life. And he asks you to let him dress you, to cover you. And that takes faith. To come to him in faith and believe that he will do it. That's what he invites you into. Now, if we believe this as a church, there's a couple of things that that's gonna do to the way that we relate to each other. The first is, it means that like, we don't have anyone to impress. We believe that God knows the truth about us and has loved us despite all of our sin and all of our shame. And so what that means is like, we can be vulnerable with each other and know each other and be known by one another. It also means that we can model this for our, for our friends. We can model this for our children. That are, it's, it's actually okay for your children to know your shortcomings. We can lead with, um, with telling our kids about our shortcomings, our fears, our insecurities, and Christ's sufficiency in that. Because as they hear that, what, what, what we'll actually get to do is point them to Jesus and our need for him. We can model it with our friends by leading with vulnerability and then receiving others' vulnerability, not with judgment, not with fixes, but with knowing and listening and loving and patience. And I wanna encourage you, I've seen some of y'all doing this and it is absolutely beautiful. It's one of the things that makes me love this church, that this is a place where people are being known and they're being loved. Let's lean into that because of the way that we've been known and loved by God. And if you don't yet know this love of God, you are invited to. You're invited to be known by the one who has made you and the one who calls you out of your hiddenness and into his gracious love. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have known us in our rebellion and our sin and in our shame and that you have not remained far off but instead have come near. And we pray that um, you would help us to believe, to believe in your grace and love. And we pray that in doing so that you would form us into the likeness of Christ to be men, women, children who bear your image to the world uh, by bearing the fruit of your spirit to one another for your good and for your glory and for our good and for the good of our neighbors. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.